Well, if you would, uh, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3, and we're going to be reading uh, verses 9 through 20. So this is actually going to be a two-part sermon. We're going to do part one this week and part two next week. Um, And I have entitled this sermon, Court is in Session. So we'll get to that in just a minute. But again, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9, and we'll be reading through verse 20. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, and we just uh, we humbly submit ourselves, Lord. We've been studying your word for months now, Lord, and, and I believe that this is the, the culmination of everything that's been said so far, Lord. I believe that as we study this passage and we look into it, Lord, this is the moment where we get to choose if we'll uh, submit our hearts to your truth, Lord, if we'll accept Um, how depraved we are. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would grant us a a spirit of humility and peace, Lord, that that we wouldn't be afraid to accept that, Lord, that we would trust in your truth and trust in your promises, Lord, that we could come to you um, and, Lord, we could lay down all of our self-righteousness and all of our excuses, Lord, that we could just come to you humbly, openly, trusting you. Lord, I pray that as we go through this, Lord, that you would speak through me. Lord, I pray that this message would be one that you've blessed. Lord, this message would be one that aligns with your word and your spirit. And Lord, I just pray that you would you would speak through me, Lord, that the words would be yours and not mine. Uh, Lord, I, I thank you so much for the, the revelations that, that you give us through your word. Lord, I just thank you so much that you continually do good works in us, Lord, that you continually reveal to us. Uh, your your perfect and, and holy will, Lord, that we can study the word, we can dive into it, Lord, and we can see your goodness, Lord, that in our weakness you are magnified, Lord. And we just pray that everything that we talk about today and everything that we do throughout the rest of our lives just magnifies you, Lord, that we bring glory to your name. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... already getting a dry mouth. So so as I was preparing for this sermon, I had to use a dictionary so much I ended up eating it. Gave me the, the sorest throat I've ever had. <laughs> That's funny. So a buddy of mine texted me that yesterday as I was preparing for the sermon. I'm like, oh, I'm going to share that. That's good. <laughs> so um, you guys remember the band Creed? Really big in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. So as I was preparing, I, I sat here and I looked at these verses. I read them. 
And I spent most of the week not really knowing exactly how I wanted to go. And then their first big hit came to mind. It's funny. I told you guys like a long time ago that music speaks to me so much, more than just about anything else. And I was sitting there, and their first hit was called My Own Prison. And the lyrics came to me. I hadn't listened to them in in probably a couple of months, but the lyrics to that song came to me. And I thought, oh, this is perfect. This is summing up everything that's happened. And so it gave me the idea. And so uh, the the lyrics to the first song, uh, the first verse of the song says, Court is in session. The verdict is in. No appeal on the docket today, just my own sin. Okay? And so I imagined, and I want to set this scene for you. So close your eyes if you will, or if you're going to fall asleep, keep them open. Uh, (laughs) But imagine with me that we're in a courtroom. Okay? In the book of Job, by the way, the, the word Satan sometimes is not used as a name. Sometimes it's used as a description or a title. In the book of Job, the word Satan is used as the Satan, which simply means the accuser. Okay, so we're going to look at this today. I want you to imagine that you're in this courtroom, okay? And rather than Paul writing these words, I want you to imagine that you're the defense and that the Satan, the accuser, is the prosecution. And so, I mean, you think about all of these trials that have happened, um, the big, uh, you know, the controversial ones, the the O.J. Simpsons, the... um, God, now, of course, I'm going to blank on all of the trials that I could think of. I was thinking of them right there. Um, is, is it Courtney Anthony um, a couple of, couple of years ago? Casey, Casey Anthony, that's the one. So um, just think about these trials and the way that there's so much tension that's been built up, so much, uh, um, so much rides on them. And then imagine how much more tense this trial would be. The consequences of this trial are eternal. And so just imagine the bailiff calls trial to order, the court to order. He says, the Supreme Court of the universe, eternal division is now in session. The honorable judge Yahweh presiding. And Yahweh sits down and says, both the prosecution and the defense have now rested their cases. The attorneys will now present their final arguments. Prosecution, you may begin. And so the room is quiet and it's tense. And Satan stands up and he says, thank you, your honor. Because remember, in the book of Job, uh, Satan had to have permission from God to do anything. Okay, So, thank you, Your Honor. Your Honor, for the last three months, because we started this series the end of October. Okay, So for the last three months, you have heard testimony about the guilt of your creation. I would like to begin my closing argument by reminding you of that which we have already established. Number one, the defense first called ignorance as a witness to their innocence. But upon my cross-examination, we were able to establish that your invisible qualities, that is, your eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen through your creation. You can see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Furthermore, we established that your law was written on their hearts, to which their conscience bears witness. We can see that in Romans chapter 2, verse 15. Not only, though, were we able to establish that ignorance was not a credible defense... But we were also able to establish that the reality of the defendant's guilt was far more sinister. As we saw, contrary to the defendant's claims of ignorance, humanity knew full well what they were doing, but chose to suppress that truth in their wickedness. And you see that in Romans 1.18. Your Honor, although humanity knew, your, knew you, they neither glorified you nor gave thanks. We can see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. 
The defendant willingly exchanged your truth for a lie and worshiped created things instead. You see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. Number two, the defense then called on circumcision, the law, and the prophets as evidence of their righteousness. Upon cross-examination, however, we were easily able to establish, in spite of the defendant's self-righteous attitude, that once again, humanity had rejected your truth and followed the evil desires of their own heart. We can see that in Romans chapter 2, verse 8. Your so-called chosen people pass judgment on others with one hand and commit the very acts they condemn with the other. We can see that in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. As I have already asserted, this righteousness, the defendant claims, is nothing more than a facade. A facade so incredibly tenuous as to be completely untenable. There's that dictionary thing. (laughs) True righteousness is not the result of simply hearing the law. No, it is the result of obeying it. See Romans chapter 2, verse 13. And number three, finally, Your Honor, I want to remind you that when I called the defendant to the stand as a witness, his own words condemned him. And so we look at Romans here, and we see, um, starting in verse 10 through verse 18, Paul lays out Scripture all throughout the Old Testament. So just imagine Satan getting up and he says, all right, here we go, Psalms. 14 verses 1 through 3, also Psalm 53 verse 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. So here we are again in Romans. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then Satan continues and he says, well, how about Psalm chapter 5 verse 9? Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue, they speak deceit. Psalm 140, verse 3. They make their tongues as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. And then here we again, back in Romans. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Or again, how about Psalm 10, verse 7. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. Back in Romans, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Or, how about Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8? Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one walks in them. No one who walks in them will know peace. Back in Romans again, their feet feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. And Satan. Or finally, how about Psalm 36 verse 1? An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. 
back in Romans, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Your Honor, I contend that no righteousness nor ignorance can be claimed. The law itself, rather than being a defense, has made the defendant aware of his own sinfulness. See Romans chapter 3 verse 20. And yet humanity stands so stubborn and unrepentant, see Romans chapter 2 verse 5, that your name is blasphemed. See Romans chapter 2 verse 24. Your Honor, please find the defendant guilty of every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Convict, convict them for their sin, because your righteous decree is that those who practice such things deserve death. And not only do they do them, they approve of others doing them as well. See Romans chapter 1, verse 29 through 32. And I imagine if this was... Um, you know, one of those courtroom TVs, or if this was a, a, a drama on primetime TV, this would be the moment where we, to be continued, and it cuts over, and for another week we get to stand in suspense. Now, it's a little unfair here for me because you guys all know the ending of the story. You know what happens, but I want you to set that aside for a moment, and I want you to imagine you're sitting in the courtroom, and you've just heard this accusation, this closing argument from the prosecution, and you know you have nothing, no defense. He's used your innocence against you. He's used your, the law against you. And then he's finally come down and he's used your own words against you. Because everything that's quoted right here is scripture from the Old Testament. And so you stand there and you realize the depravity of your own sinfulness. And you know what's next. You know the verdict is coming in and you know that you're guilty. And you know that God's righteous decree is that those things deserve death. And so you know that there's no getting off and that you're about to spend eternity in damnation. You know what's coming. Can you just imagine the tenseness? Imagine the sweaty hands. As I'm sitting here describing it, my hands are getting sweaty. Can you imagine the immensity of knowing that there's nothing that you can do? No defense you can claim. You are evil to your core. Guys, we've spent so much time here in over the last three months. I mean, we've been since October. and We've made it to the beginning of chapter 3. We've spent so much time here because I think this is the most important thing that I can teach you is that if you for a moment think that you could stand in the courtroom of God and that your defense would stand, you've got no chance. Our only hope is what we're going to discuss next week. Our only hope is that somebody steps in and their closing argument is something that we can claim because we don't have one. And so I I am pleading with you, I am imploring you, please set aside any kind of self-righteousness. We live in a society where we've got folks like the Westboro Baptist Church running around and and defaming the name of God by the way that they act. I mean, have have you guys seen some of the things they do? Picketing fences out there, uh, funerals out there with signs that say God hates fags? I mean, have you seen how much hatred they spread? What is that accomplishing? It's, it's this self-righteousness that disgusts me. Because, and, and I think it disgusts me so much is because after I got saved as a sophomore in high school, I, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I went around and I carried my Bible with me 
everywhere, from class to class. And rather than looking at the Bible and seeing the redemption and the hope, I carried it around and I would point out to people, this is, this is what you're doing wrong and this is why you're going to hell. And I was that arrogant, self-righteous, man, I just, I didn't understand it. And when it hit me, it radically changed my life. And so it really, it just, it burns me up inside to see how much we ruin our witness. Just think about that courtroom, how devastated. You know, you're not being convicted to 20 years in jail where you get three meals a day and you get to work out and you don't have any responsibilities. You're getting convicted to an eternity in, in hell. And you have no defense. And somebody stepped up and, and they didn't defend you. You understand that? Christ didn't step up and say, eh, they're not so bad. No. Christ got up and said, they're as bad as you say they are. But you know what? I'm going to take that punishment for them. Just accept the immensity of what has happened. And it changes you. Again, the motivation, everything we've looked at from Romans 1 through Romans, where, you know, where we are in Romans, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Everything has led us to an understanding that we are depraved. And when we seek to serve God as a way to earn it, we can't. I mean, the scripture here, it's teaching us that not only are we evil to our core, Most of the time, our motivations for doing good stem from evil desires. I mean, we go out and we do good, but, I mean, what does it say? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And you'll say, I never knew you. Our actions have to stem from a desire to please our Savior. They cannot stem from any other place. This is, I was talking with Valerie on the way home, and I want to clarify something in case there was any, any confusion. The quote that I keep saying, I've said it twice, I'm going to say it a third time. Uh, I don't want there to be any confusion. John Piper's dad, Bill Piper, one of my favorite quotes, he said, it's much harder to get people lost than it is to get people saved. The point that I'm trying to make with the quote, what that quote means is that until you are lost, you can't accept a savior. And so we have spent so much time here trying to come to this place where we stand in the courtroom, we hear the defend, the, the, the prosecution, we hear the closing argument, and we know we have no defense. We are hopelessly, desperately wicked. We are lost, and there's nothing we can do about it. And I just imagine just falling to my knees and, and just weeping because I know what's coming. And then imagine Christ comes in and he lays down his life and says, I'll go for you. The immensity of that, it's incredible. It's life-changing. And it's the gospel. It's the good news. The good news is not that we could ever be enough. All of the commandments here, that's not the gospel The gospel is that even though we couldn't keep them, even though from start to finish, when we go on this this journey looking at 
Israel's history, when we look at our life from start to finish and we see repeatedly that we fail and we make these attempts to do better and we fail and we get up and we make these attempts to do better and we fail, even though that's the case, our punishment's been paid. Again, so many Christians have this idea. Christians, it's, it's, it's anti-biblical. But so many Christians operate on the same philosophy that the rest of the world operates on. And that is this sliding scale or this, this, this scale. If I just do more good than I do bad, somehow when I get to heaven and I stand at the gates, God's going to look at me and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You understand that it, that's not how it works. Christ took your scale. His scale had nothing on the bad side. Yours was weighted so heavily that nothing good you could do could even be put on the good side. And he took your scale and he went to the cross and he died in your place and he went to hell in your place and he rose three days later. And because of that resurrection, he has conquered and we're able to say, oh death, where is your sting? It's powerful. It's the good news. It's the message we need to be taking to the world. That's the revival. It starts with us understanding our place in the story. When we get our place in the story wrong and we make ourselves... I mean, so many times I've seen these bumper stickers, Jesus is my co-pilot. He better not be. He better not be. If if you're flying the plane and Jesus is just your co-pilot, you're going to crash. My mentor says something all the time because he was a he was a navy pilot, and he says, "Man, you get into a plane with somebody that uh, that doesn't know how to fly. It's going to be two things: short and exciting. And that's what's going to happen, man. If Jesus is your co-pilot, you're going to crash. He's not your co-pilot. You're a passenger in the very back, you know, on the wing next to the lavatory. Like your life is not about you. You can't do it. And when you accept that." Everything else begins to get right. Proper alignment. And so, guys, next week we're going to explore what, you know, the, the court is in session part two. We're going to explore what Jesus said in our defense. And so I want to I, I encourage you guys, be in prayer. I hope you continue to study through Romans. I hope you continue to pray that God would pierce your heart with the truth of his word and, and, and that you would... You would lay down, I feel like I say this a lot, I feel like I repeat this message a lot, but that you would lay down the things that we lift up as idols, that, that, that you would let it go, and you would stop trying to be righteous, and you would start trying to be pleasing to your Savior. Motives matter. How many times have we heard the, the, the highway to hell is paved with good intentions? You know, motives matter. Heart matters. Jesus expressed that in his ministry. Heart matters. So be praying that God would continue to reveal to you the ways that we get it wrong. Look for inside yourself the places where you, you elevate yourself to the status of God and you lower Jesus to this genie in a bottle that you can call on whenever things get bad. Look for those times where, where you, you get it wrong because that's where revival begins. And when we get it right and we go out into our communities and we live like that, people see that there's something different about us. You know, 
I talked about it, the way that the way the apostles lived, the way that they could go through, you know, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. I understand that that's misquoted quite frequently. It has nothing to do with running a four-minute mile, okay? But what it has to do with is the way that Paul learned that he could be treated, he could be beaten, he could be imprisoned, and he could still live in joy. He could have much, and it didn't go to his head. He could have nothing, and it didn't go to his heart. He trusted, he loved He can do all things through Christ. When we go out into our communities with that attitude, we're able to change the world. People look at us and they see Jesus. Instead of this hatred that that, that we see when people get it wrong. And so I implore you, please, 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 please understand this. Please be praying that God would reveal it to you. Please be in the word. 